just got to say how great it is to be with you and to be part of this wonderful choir going out over there. <laughs> well, glorious is God's name, for sure. We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 10. Suddenly we see some of the consequences of that fall we saw in Genesis chapter 3 and how it affects all of us. Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Well, this morning I would like us to look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, as Jim had previously read, and in particular, looking at the warning that God has given that sin is crouching at our door. And sin begins in the heart, and I mean by that in the inner man. And the Bible teaches that I believe we are composed of the inner man and the outer man. God, we're told in Genesis, formed us out of the dust of the ground, the elements of this earth which he created, and then it says that he breathed life into us. Then it goes on to say that He created them, male and female, all the species of this earth. And an interesting side note is that if you look at, he created a male and female elephant, a male and female tiger, and he created those independently. But what is interesting is that he created woman out of the man, as we have learned in our study recently in the roles of men and women But sin begins on the inside and the inner man and the heart. And what I mean by the heart is that non-material part of us, the aspect of our mind and the inner man of the soul in the heart. This is the way the Jews would have understood that in the Hebrew thinking. But eventually sin on the inside, if it is left unchecked, eventually works its way out in both our words and our deeds in our actions. And it takes quick and decisive action to root it out, 
and to put sin to death, the mortification of the flesh, as some of the reformers referred to it. And if you let sin linger and grow in your life, it can easily get the upper hand, often resulting in terrible destruction and sorrow. And that's not only for you and me, but also for those around us are affected by our words and actions as David proclaimed in Psalm 51 that sin is, all sin is against the Lord ultimately, but often our sin impacts others around us with devastating effects. And we see the tragic effects of unchecked sin as recorded in the account of Cain and Abel. And this is not some fable or fairy tale. This is actual recorded redemptive history that Moses is writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Cain was the first person born in sin. And as all all of us that have been born since then. And Cain's murder of his brother was even more tragic because of the hopes possibly connected with his birth. And, and think about this. Imagine the hope of, uh, you will, of Adam and Eve at, at Cain's birth as they reflected on God's promise. And you recall this. God had promised them, even after their fall, to send a deliverer through the seed of the woman. And perhaps Adam and Eve thought Cain was that promised deliverer, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And yet, as we know, looking back on it, you know, Eve had not given birth to the deliverer, but actually to a murderer. And that's a frightening possibility that every parent since Adam and Eve faces. You know, we all have hopes and dreams and aspirations for our children. We want them to grow up and live productive lives and godly lives and but sin resides in the heart of every, every newborn. And it's only a matter of time until that sin manifests itself in a variety of ways in each of our own lives. And I want you to understand this morning that unchecked sin from within leads to devastation without. And Adam's sin was imputed to the entire human race. Because Adam was appointed by God and was acting as our federal head. So that each person is born in sin. And that's clear from scripture, Ephesians chapter 5, excuse me, Ephesians 2, Romans chapter 5. And even David, whom God called a man after his own heart, lamented, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And again, that's from Psalm 51. Verse 5, and perhaps like I've struggled at times thinking, if you know the life of David and what he did, how he committed adultery and basically set up Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, to be murdered and killed in combat, you think, how in the world could David be a man after God's own heart? And what's interesting about David, as far as we know, he never worshipped or pursued a foreign god. He was always loyal in some aspect to the true and genuine and living God. And not only did David proclaim that he was brought forth in iniquity, Jeremiah also groaned in 17.9 that 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 sums up our, our condition of each and every one of us apart from divine grace. And he tells us there is none righteous, no, not even, not even one person. There is no one who understands, there is none who seeks for God. And perhaps you've heard people say, well, so-and-so seeking after God. No, they're not, according to Scripture. They might be seeking after a, a God that they construct, which is really nothing more than idolatry, a God that they're willing to worship and serve. But it's not the God of the Bible that causes us to die to ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Christ in obedience. But Paul goes on, there's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's no one who does good. There's not even one person that does good. And again, that good is measured by our own human standard, not by God's perfect, holy righteousness. And he goes on, for all have sinned, without exception, and all fall short of the glory of God. They don't measure up. And this is what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. It's the T in the TULIP acronym. And total depravity does not mean that every person is evil as he can possibly be at, at every moment. Nor that sinful people are incapable of doing good from a human perspective. There's many organizations and people that do great humanitarian work. But even the best of those works are as filthy rags in the nostrils of a holy God. Rather, total depravity means, in one sense, that there is nothing in the human heart, the inner man, capable of earning God's favor. And total depravity means that that sin has infected every aspect of our being, the inner and the outer man. It's affected our mind. Our minds are darkened. We have no understanding apart from divine grace. And the human heart by nature is is hostile towards God. It hates God, the true and living God, the righteous God. And it goes on to say it's unable to please God in Romans 8. And we know from Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it's impossible to please God. This is clearly taught in Scripture. You can give a pig a bath. You could dress him up in a nice tuxedo. But unless the nature of that pig has changed, guess what it does? Just what the scripture says, it returns to wallowing in the mud because that's what it is. You know, and as sinners, we can dress up in good deeds and look good and righteous on the outside and appear to others and be very spiritual. But we're simply what the Scripture calls whitewashed tombs. You look real good on the outside, but that inner man is still filthy and dirty and full of death apart from a new heart. Unless God gives us that new nature, that new heart through the new covenant, the best of us, our hearts are corrupt. And we sin because... We're sinners by nature. <laughs> That's what we do, just like a pig wallows in the mud. 
You know, Jesus taught in Mark 7, that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart, Jesus is talking. Out of the heart of men. It's, it's, it's not external things that make us sin. It's what's in here. We just use our hands to commit the sin. We use our lips to commit the sins. But it all originates in here, and it's manifested and worked out through the physical body. But Jesus clearly teaches in Mark 7 that it's out of the inner man, the heart. And out of this evil heart proceed evil thoughts. Fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. Sin comes from within. It's not what you're putting in your mouth that defiles you. Jesus clearly says it's what's coming out of your mouth, coming out that defiles you. And that was Cain's problem as well as each of us here this morning. And we read in Genesis that when the brothers brought their respective offerings, that God, Yahweh, had regard for Abel's sacrifice, but not for Cain's. And there's a lot of different interpretations as you read commentaries on why people think that was. But we know from 1 Samuel chapter 15 that the Lord desires obedience rather than sacrifice. It's not about just going through the routine and appearing is, is a whitewashed tomb because God knows our heart. The Word of God lays it bare. He knows our motives and our secret desires, even when we ourselves don't fully understand and know those things. Well, Cain's unacceptable offering was just a reflection of his sinful, rebellious heart. You know, God had given clear instruction about the type of sacrifice that he would accept. You know, Think back. He, he'd already provided Adam and Eve with a graphic lesson by clothing them with the skins of animals. Showing them that their human effort to cover their own sin and shame with fig leaves was not an adequate covering. So God showed it. He had to kill an animal and take that skin, that hide, and cover them in their shame and their nakedness and their sin. And God clearly sent a picture of what is required. Surely, Adam and Eve would have taught their sons what God had shown them about the proper way to approach a holy God. You know, God had, had given adequate instruction either directly or through their parents. And again, the responsibilities of every parent here this morning to teach our children the ways of the Lord, that they grow up understanding how we are to approach a holy God. And to know that Adam had to have had, or excuse me, Cain and Abel had to have clear instructions, I think that's confirmed by the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. And we talked about this the last time that I had the opportunity to bring you the word of God, that we obtained the righteousness of Christ through faith alone. And that righteousness is imputed. Just as I said that our sin is imputed from Adam, 
Well, who is the second Adam? The Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness, which Adam could not do, and we cannot fulfill the works of the law and the demands of the law in perfection. And Christ has done for us. And we apprehend that righteousness through faith alone. Well, obviously, Cain and Abel had heard the instructions of God. And Abel acted in faith. Because faith believes God's word, and it acts in obedience to the word, the revealed will of God. That's why Jesus said, you know, go and make disciples in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and teach them to observe all that I commanded. And Jesus also says, if you love me, you'll do as I say. That's what faith does. It acts upon the word of God, the truth of God. And we work that out in our lives in faithful obedience by the grace of God. And Abel couldn't have offered that sacrifice in faith unless God had revealed exactly what he required. And it was to be a sacrifice that involved the shedding of blood through the death of a substitute. You know, God had declared that the penalty of sin was death. You know, how do you explain newborns and miscarriages if there were no sin? No infant would suddenly die if there was not that sin present. More evidence of God's word being true. And it's difficult for us to think of a newborn innocent baby as being a sinner, but that's the nature of all born. There would be no death apart from sin. God had shown that he would accept the death of a proper substitute in place of the death of a guilty sinner. God's grace and mercy are already being displayed. And all those old covenant sacrifices that we read about, of the animal sacrifices in the temple and other places, pointed forward and pictured the death of the promised perfect Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ who would appear to finally take away sin and for all time, never to be repeated again, a perfect final sacrifice. That's one reason why I believe there's not going to be a rebuilding of the third temple, and there's a lot of talk about that. I think it would be an affront to God to offer animal sacrifices after the final and perfect sacrifice has already been given, and he sat down at the right hand of his father. Cain and Abel both knew what God required. But only Abel came in obedience of faith with his offering. Cain came with the fruit of his own labor. It was in defiance of what God had specified that he required as an acceptable sacrifice. And why did Cain do that? Beneath his wrong offering was a root of pride. That resides in every fallen heart. And think again about those three basic sins that every of the other sins grow out of. What? Pride, self-focus, and unbelief. You can trace all the other particular sins back to those three bases that every one of us as sinners deal with.
You know, pride tells us that we have something in ourselves that will commend and make us acceptable to the Most High. You know, pride whispers something like this in your ear. You know, you're, you're a pretty good person. <laughs> sure, you've got a, a few minor faults, but, you know, we all do. But none of those are really so bad that you would be eternally condemned. You know, just just do your best. You know, be sincere. And you'll be fine in the end. After all, God God loves everyone. Surely he wouldn't condemn a, a decent person like you who's trying the best he can. Your good certainly outweighs your bad. And God knows and understands. Well, <laughs> that's nothing but prideful thinking and a darkened mind. And that's at the root of every man-made humanistic religion of works that's out there. But it's totally opposed to the truth of biblical Christianity that declares that we're all sinners by nature and by deed, and that no sinner can save himself from God's righteous judgment. And think about it. If, if we can offer God anything or partake in our salvation in any way to merit God's favor, and to turn away God's wrath. And did Christ really need to die in each of our places to bear the wrath of God, to bear our shame? Did he really need to be the only possible substitute for helpless sinners in order to justify God's holy justice? If we could do it in and of ourselves? You know, God didn't accept Cain's offering based on some arbitrary unfairness. Nor did he accept it because that's the best Abel was able to do. It's his best effort. He gave it his all. Because Abel, you know, by nature, he was just as much a sinner as his brother. Who causes one to differ from the other, the scripture asks us. Well, God accepted Abel's offering because it was done in faith. In response to God's word, his instructions. It had nothing to do with Cain's efforts or Abel's efforts. It had everything to do with God's just requirement for a blood sacrifice to atone for sin as to be the only means of approaching him in all of God's purity and holiness. God demands and requires perfect righteousness. (laughs) Remember, you failed, you're trying to merit God's favor by keeping the law. And I'm talking in particular the old covenant law. And remember, there's 600 and something points to that law. And the scripture says you fail at just one point, you failed at all points of the law. But Jesus did every one of them perfectly. The law was never intended to save anyone. It was a tutor to point us to Christ, to show us our weaknesses And apart from divine mercy and grace, we were without hope. And that's the good news of the gospel. None of us has what it takes in and of ourselves to please God on our own merits. None of us can achieve it through works of the law. But by his grace, God offers perfect righteousness through faith 
through faith alone in the sacrifice of his son alone, who is the only acceptable substitute for sinners. There is no other name under heaven which a man can be reconciled and made right with God but the Lord Jesus Christ. And every creature is commanded to repent and to believe on him. And all that cry out to him for humble mercy, he will no wise cast out or turn away. And here's what happens when our pride gets the best of us, as it did with Cain. You know, pride in his own efforts led to sinful anger. When he was offering, it was rejected. So not only did was Cain angry with God, <laughs> he was also angry with his brother. Remember, this is before he killed him. And his Cain's sinful anger led him into depression, discouragement. We're told that his countenance or his face fell. In verse 5, he grew jealous. And it all stemmed from his pride that had tried to approach God on his own terms and his own merits. You know, God would have been perfectly holy and right to have struck Cain dead at that point for offering the improper sacrifice. Remember where God instructed him not to touch the ark? <laughs> And even though it looked like it was going to fall into the mud, and when they touched it, God struck them dead. He can do that. But here, God graciously comes to Cain with a warning to call him to repentance. God graciously warns Cain to put off his sin. And the Lord asked Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? And God's not needing to ask a question because he doesn't know or lacks some kind of knowledge about what's going on. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's declared the beginning and the end. The scripture says that no one can thwart his purpose. He who began the work in our life will complete it. He often asks questions to get the hearer to think rightly about the condition of their heart. God was telling Cain, you know, your, your anger... And your foul mood should tell you something about yourself. The reason you're angry and depressed is that you were not willing to submit to my commands. <laughs> and you didn't get your own way. And when you saw that, I accepted your brother's sacrifice, you grew jealous. And if you're here this morning, and you often struggle with sinful anger, just ask yourself the question God asked Cain. Why are you angry? <laughs> what do you want that you're not getting, and what are you getting that you don't want? And that will tell you the heart of the matter. <laughs> and what happens if, if you're honest with yourself, you'll probably learn that you're a lot more selfish than you care to admit. And we all struggle with that. And you might also discover that your anger is a cover for some other area of disobedience in your life. Or it may be that you're angry because you believe that God's dealing with you unfairly. And that takes us right back to Asaph in Psalm 73. You know, perhaps you're saying to yourself, you know, I'm just as good a Christian as so-and-so. 
I do more around the church. I teach Sunday school. I do good deeds and help widows. Look how God's blessing them. They don't seem to do anything. But all I get by following God and trying to do my best is suffering and problems and heartache and afflictions and suffering. It's not fair. (laughs) Well, let me give you a, a helpful bit of advice and counsel this morning. Never ask God to deal with you fairly. <laughs> Never ask that. The only way to approach God is as a humble, undeserving sinner seeking mercy and grace. That's the only way. But God's warning tells Cain what he needs to do and then applies to each of us this morning. Verse 7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And in the context, contextual hermeneutic here, doing well means go back, do the right thing, offer the right sacrifice, and you will be accepted. Offer it in faith. And God is giving Cain the opportunity to repent and to do right. And there's an important principle here you can apply to your life this morning as you leave. (laughs) By doing well, you will feel well. Doing well will lead to a clear conscience. Actions lead to feelings. The world acts if it feels like it. That's not Christian life. We do it if it's the right thing to do, even when we don't feel like doing it. Cain was angry and Cain was depressed because of his sin. And God said, act right. Do the right thing and you will feel right. But... If you continue to live life by your feelings and disobey God and go your own way, continue in your pride and hard-heartedness, you're going to be plunged into guilt and depression eventually. You know, God doesn't tell us to live by our feelings, but by faith and obedience in his word. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 makes that clear. Do well and you will feel well as the result of faithful obedience to the commands of our Lord. And God warns Cain and us, hey, sin is crouching at your door. You know, and and there God pictures sin as, as this wild animal ready to pounce upon you at any moment. And he says it has a desire for you. It's your enemy, but you must master that. And this description that the scripture provides is very striking. The Hebrew word translated as crouching there in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 can indicate it's, you know, lying down as in resting, but it also refers to lying in wait like a predator lurking after its prey, just ready to jump out. Perhaps you've seen that on some of the Wild Kingdom animal discovery channels. You know, you get the lion hiding out there in the 
Isn't it just amazing how their color of their skin or their, their hide matches exactly that grass they hide in, and then when the zebras come by, they just pounce and jump out of there and ambush them. And what's kind of like what the picture is here of sin crouching? It's like a predator lurking for its prey. That same Hebrew verb is also associated with the ancient Semitic term for demons that were believed to guard the entrances or the doorways to buildings. So what you've got there is is the text characterizing sin as a demonic presence or a predatory animal waiting to pounce on Cain, waiting to pounce on you. And God's saying... And graciously telling, he said, deal with your sin. Don't let it continue, or you will eventually find yourself in the unescapable grip of a wild beast that you can't control. You know, think about it. We often see sins in our life. You know, we talked at one point about those respectable sins. You know, gossip, slander, backbiting, murmuring, complaining, deceitfulness. All these things that come out of the human heart, but we often think of ourselves. You know, those. Yeah, they might they might be sin, but it's it's just like a little kitten. <laughs> you know, it sits there on my lap. I've got it controlled. It's not a problem at all. And that's how we often look at our our sins, rather than looking at them the way we should. That this this sin is a man eating lion, waiting to completely devour us. You know, sin always begins with wrong thoughts in the mind. That's why we're Romans 12, the renewing of the mind, to have the mind of Christ, to have our conscience tutored by the word of God so we would have sensitive consciences to what is right and wrong. And if we let those wrong thoughts, you know, if we dwell on those too long and we allow those thoughts to continue, guess what? That leads to wrong feelings. Boy, I was really done wrong. (laughs) Or I look around, man, they seem to have everything over there. And you can, from thinking that way and evaluating that thing and the circumstances, next thing you know, you're envious and you're jealous. So when you allow those thoughts, and as I've said before, I, I, I don't have a way to tell people, where do those thoughts come from? They just pop into your mind. And I've used the illustration before, it's, it's like the surfer. You know, the surfer can't control the waves, but he can choose which wave he's going to ride. And you need to do that with your thoughts. Take them captive, take them control. Exercise some self-control by the grace of God. Think on those things which are pure, which are lovely. Philippians 4.8, our think list. Well, when the wrong feelings develop, they lead to wrong words. You say something. Wrong words lead to what? Wrong actions. And then next thing you know, those wrong actions become a habit. And then you've developed into a sinful manner of life that characterizes who you are. And sin is so deceptive, you might not even understand it and see it in yourself. That's one reason why you need the help of others to point things out. Because we don't see them. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, the Scripture says. That's one reason I'm so grateful for a group of a plurality of biblically qualified elders. (laughs) Point out one another's sins. 
when we don't see them. We all can justify why we do what we do. We need faithful brothers and sisters in Christ to be honest with us, to help us overcome these things for the glory of Christ and the purity of his church. You know, think about that Cain's sin shows the hardening process that had set into the human race in just one generation of sin. (laughs) When God asked, where's your brother? Again, he's not asking because he needs to know. He knows exactly where he is and what's happened. And Cain replies with those rebellious words revealing his heart. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The arrogance of that. Think about it. That's it. This is kind of like his father Adam. Hey, wouldn't it's the woman you gave me that caused me to do it? You know the blame shifting. But here you got this arrogant insinuation. Is can't you keep track of your own creation, God? Do you need me to tell you what's going on? There's not one word of repentance in that kind of attitude. It's just reflecting a rebellious heart. An able, righteous man. You know, Jesus also said in Matthew 23 that Abel was righteous. He was, here's a righteous man that was murdered by his own brother. You know, the first murderer that we have in history. And Adam and Eve were, you can only imagine, they were undoubtedly overwhelmed with grief at that. You know, their hopes for their son being the deliverer. Those were dashed. Cain fled into a distant land, we're told later on there in chapter 4. He was estranged from his parents. And the saddest thing, it says he went away from the presence of God. You know, and his descendants learned his arrogant and violent ways because sin grows it consumes it dominates and it destroys if not dealt with so don't underestimate the power of sin in your life it is deceitful sometimes we don't see the way sin's working in our lives and how it's affecting others around us sometimes we just don't want to see it Don't tolerate any known sin in your life. Deal with it today. Don't make excuses for it. Don't rationalize it. Don't minimize it. Don't blame others for it. Don't make peace with it. You know, Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And that word cherish comes from the word, that root word, to look after. It has the idea of looking on something with pleasure. And if we're honest, we enjoy our sin. Certain sins can bring a sense of pleasure. But as Solomon said, it won't last. It'll just end up in heartache and sorrow. But sometimes we look at our sin with pleasure, and we do it when we treat sin as a welcome friend rather than a hostile enemy that's set to destroy us. And I think this is a helpful metaphor because it connects well with the idea of repentance, which literally means a change of mind, thinking differently about it, 
obviously, though, repentance is more than just changing our mind. It, it starts there, but it leads to righteous action, doing the right thing, and you'll feel well. Repentance with accompaniment of the fruits that go along with that. And the first step in turning away from sin begins with the way we understand it and the way we view it. And we've, we've got to come to the point where we see it the way God sees it. We have to see it as an enemy wanting to devour and destroy us. It's a serious matter. It's so serious that the Son of God himself died for it, that we would be delivered from it. To walk worthy in a manner of our calling as we're instructed. And attack sin when you're first aware of it. Don't play with it. Attack it when you're first aware and it's still small in your life because it's like an acorn from an oak tree. You know, when it falls in the forest, if you pick it up immediately, it's not very hard to do. It's easy. Even a, even a little child can go over and pick it up out of the ground. And even if it had taken, you know, some root and just sprouted, you... It's still relatively easy to dig it out. But if you leave it alone for a long time and it's become a manner of life, it sends down deep roots in your life and grows into a strong tree that requires a lot of work and heartache to remove it. And ask God to search your heart for hidden sin, things you're not even aware of. In Psalm 139, David prayed, Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And again, we also need the help of one another in this body of Christ, this local body. In this particular regard, we're told and instructed out of Hebrews 3, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, the one anotherings of the local church. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Think of others more highly than you think of yourself. Having a word that will edify and build up rather than tear down and cause divisiveness and strife among the brethren. Building up into the unity of the faith. These are all the things our Lord, who is head of the church, has called us to do. But none of us can do any of these things in our own strength. That's why we have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and God's daily grace, which he promises is sufficient to meet our needs. Jesus is there. He's a friend that will never leave or forsake you, as some do. He's there when we need him. We don't have enough wisdom. We don't have enough discipline. We don't have enough perseverance to manage all this on our own. We're just helpless sinners in need of God's daily grace. And we must search our hearts and we must turn away from sin. And the Holy Spirit works in us continually to help us grow into the likeness of Christ, which he has purposed before the foundations of this world that we be conformed to the image of his son. And that's an ongoing work of this progressive sanctification. It happens as we walk with him and we walk with one another. This is the methodology that God ordained in order that we become like Christ, that we grow in holiness and purity, that we put off sin. We need him and we need each other. Which brings us to the Lord's table.
And consider this passage in Isaiah chapter 6. And we're told there that one of the seraphs flew to me, to Isaiah, and says, he had a live coal in his hand. Again, that sounds strange. (laughs) Which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth, my lips. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And Isaiah's experience of God's presence brought him a sacred cleansing necessary for his life of service to Israel at the time. And think about this. You know, similarly, when we take those physical pictures of the body and the blood of Christ, we take the bread and we wine to our lips during the Lord's table, which we observe every week. That reminds us that when you touch that with your lips, it's a picture and a reminder and an encouragement that our guilt has been taken away and our sin has been atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus and the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. This is what that symbolizes. Jesus did for his people what he could never do, we, what we could never do. He provided the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And the Holy Spirit purified us and came to live in us. And it dwells each and every regenerate believer gathered here this morning. And my holiness and your holiness, our righteousness and perfection, are never won through our own efforts on this earth. But it was accomplished and applied by the Son of Man, the Son of God who came from heaven's glory and gave his life so that we might be the righteousness of God. (laughs) And that's the gospel. All who would turn from their sin, repent, and turn to Christ in faith alone, trusting in what he has done, shall be saved to the uttermost until Christ returns at the end of the age to receive his bride. And until then, we are commanded to partake of the Lord's table as a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. So please ponder these things.